Let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for time in your word. We're grateful for this section of Romans that we've been going through, that is pressing us to stand in your gospel the way we ought, pursue righteousness the way we ought. Bless us in this, this morning, your Lord, your Lord in, in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in Romans 8. We have been through Romans 5, 6, and 7. Um, hopefully, we have come to realize that Paul has a dim view of the law and its ability to create righteousness. Going through chapter 7, we um, said unthinkable things that this was Paul as a non believer, but it was how. Man approaches righteousness. I was talking to someone yesterday, and the basic line was, you know, it's the shortest distance between two points is always a law. And since this guy was a conservative Christian and a libertarian, he applauded the notion, yes, that's, that's how people function. They make a rule. Parents do it too. Don't like this? Make a rule. Change this? Make a rule. Every governmental department not just has laws that it functions under, but all of its regulations. You work for business, you really realize all that human resources stuff you have to view before you go on the job is because they have all these rules. And law, government of that kind, is because the people aren't going to do that. That's why you have a rule. That's why there is a law. And Paul in Romans 7, as you remember from last week, struggled with knowing that the law was good and just and holy. But he was carnal. He could see the good written on the very surface of the law, and yet he couldn't do it. And he realizes that this is a death relationship. Law and self kill you. That's basically it. We've been big on death on the last few, few chapters. But one of the basic problems for Christians is because we know that Christianity is kind of on God's side. One, you like the Okay, on God's side, not the devil. And it's kind of defined by the good guys and the bad guys. You know that God wants you holy. God wants you made right with him. So of course all of us are about trying to get holy, but we don't ever stop to think about what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for that. We just pick up the same standard nonsense of live by ourselves and have controlling laws. Okay? Do what you want, but have controlling laws. And so churches try to invent more efficiently controlling laws. Because nobody stops to think that maybe we're not the same kind of people. We're not the same kind of person as in Romans 7. Too many Christians are too comfortable thinking, oh yeah, that's a believer, because that's just like my life. It had better not be just like your life. Because that is the body of death. 
And when we close with the last, well, the first two verses of chapter 8 last week, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. That was our conclusion. You've been set free, if you're a Christian, to an entirely different system. A different system of righteousness. It would seem that those of us who have been pursuing God's righteousness and may have been trapped under the law for whatever reason, either as you know, pious non-believers or you know, uh, churchy believers, that we'd be interested in this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It doesn't even sound like the law of Moses. It doesn't even sound like it's going to end up being a set of rules about things. Because it freed you up from the law. It's no freedom to say, I have been owned by Master A, and now I'm being bought by Master B, if they're the same kind of master. You're out picking cotton in one case, and you're out picking cotton in the other. That's what happened to slaves. Now, we have become slaves of righteousness, but it means that it has to be a different kind of master. We are bought. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. But the whole shooting match has to go someplace else. If you don't think that Christianity is something else entirely, some different approach to righteousness, because look what it says. This is the benefit of this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Okay? We got the impression in Romans 7 that the law wasn't doing it. The law was just condemning you. The law was just increasing the trespass. The law was just making you sinful beyond measure. But it couldn't do anything. Now how has he done that? Is that we got hints about this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. God has done what couldn't be done by the law. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The incarnation. Christ coming as a human being is the incarnation. Enfleshment, that's what incarnation means. Taking on flesh. What is the second thing? Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and some translations, if you're looking at your own Bible, may say, and for a sin offering, that's suggested in there, is not just he looked like sinful people, he atoned for sin. He was a sacrifice for sin. Having done this, he condemned sin in the flesh. Law and sin are those perverse stepchildren or step-siblings that obviously don't agree, don't see eye to eye, but they kind of have this mutual dependency or they're enablers or what is it, uh, what are the other trendy words that you would use for um, codependence? Um, law and sin just go together. 
One represents good, one is just evil, but boy, they live on each other's pressures. The more you sin, the more you want to have more laws. The more laws you get, the more you want to sin. But he condemns sin in the flesh through this procedure. He's going after the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus as distinct from moral code. Why is he doing that? Or how did he do that? The incarnation and the atonement. In order to condemn sin in the flesh. In order that you could actually look back at sin and not have to pretend that Romans 7 was about a believer. You wouldn't have to play, you know, old Harry with that text to make it look like he was a Christian because you matched it too well. Jesus Christ condemns sin in the flesh. Verse 4. In order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Righteousness out the other end. The imperative of God. God has a character. God is holy. God is love. God wants his creation to relate to its, its, its other parts in love. And in love, all the moral distinctives are met. Paul argues that later in Romans. He wants his imperative about life and his creation met. The law reflected it, but the law couldn't do anything. The law just stepped in there and made you want to do the opposite. But he has done something in his son that enables you to meet that just requirement and not run around claiming Romans 7 is about a believer. Where you actually get to say, like Paul says in another place, I'm a, you are a Christian, I'm a better one. Where you could say, I am in the light. Where you say, I am at peace with God. I am rejoicing in the Lord. Those of us who have fulfilled it could say that. But that's why he did it, is so that it could be fulfilled. Who walk? It isn't a hint here. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, that's the theme right there, that last phrase. Who walk? Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Your proceeding through life has a choice of two things. Flesh and spirit. It's up. I'll quote my father here. Holiness is not just easy. This is Jim Wilson. It's super easy. He's not real good with language. Super is kind of an oh, really super easy. Holiness. And most Christians run around thinking they're pious for admitting their brokenness. Treating original sin, which I don't believe in, as if it were a perpetual problem. They are always at war with God. The scripture do not, does not speak that way. The scripture speaks of victory in righteousness by this procedure. And you're going to see chapter 8 if you've been through 5, 6, and 7, you say, hold it, but if there isn't the law, why would people be good? 
I heard someone, we were talking about, my wife and I were talking about another problem in the local community uh, that some people were dealing with. And one of the people involved said, well, I'll, I'll do the right thing. I'll do whatever I'm commanded to do. You need a command to do this? People function and think they're going to function in terms of command. Command is their measure of what is righteous. We have an entirely different way of going about this as Christians. And the problem of sin in the church, no matter this church, any church, sin in your life is because you keep going back to believing the old system. And you never think that you've done something wrong in your beliefs because you still trade in the spirit for the law. You still, you, oh, I'm still in favor of goodness. Let's put a copy of the Ten Commandments out in the foyer. See? We're interested in holiness. Uh, no, you're not. You're interested in the law. And the flesh and the law go together. Sin and the law go together. Now look at this next section here. How subtle piety seems when it accepts in humility that I'm a sinner, you know? And God, I really need the grace of God all the time. Well, yeah, you do need the grace of God. But that's not part of your pious message that you're a sinner. If you admit you're a sinner, get on your knees and confess it. Today. Get right. Knock it off. Stop it. Because the grace of God is there to deliver you from sin. Either by forgiveness or the power of his grace by walking in the Spirit. The gospel of Christ is about changing the Christian's minds from functioning in the flesh to functioning in the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, this is a hint of what goes on, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. Can you end here? I, I made it in red. Did you notice that? Maybe it has something to do with setting my mind. Maybe. Life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That was the description in Romans 7. The problem we have with sin is we have minds set on the flesh. Oh, you say. Subtler than that. Because you're, you're thinking of the person who's got an alcohol problem or chases the, the ladies because that's flesh. You know, flesh, short skirts, high heels, whatever you want to conceive of in your, in your sort of Gnostic imaginings, anything that is... And those, those things are, yeah, there's no doubt about it. The, the desire of the flesh in First John is one of the desires of the flesh. Paul has a broader sense of this. I want you to keep it in mind because it's crucial to digging up this root of, of uh, 
problem in our lives, of how we can look so religious, be so devoted to the church and the saints, and still struggle with our sins so much. I have a couple of verses here. On the left-hand side, 1 Corinthians 3.1. But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even yet you were not ready, for you are still of the flesh. You still drink too much? No. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving like ordinary men? For one says, I belong to Paul, another says, I belong to Apollos. Are you not merely men? Paul's understanding of the flesh includes not just drunkenness, not just chase of the ladies, but going to church and picking one for wrong reasons. So you could actually be here as steeped in the flesh because you picked all souls in an I am of Apollos sort of way. Are you not acting like mere men? Men of the flesh? Because that is how the world does it. That's how, why you join the Kiwanis. It's why you join the Rotary. Why you're, you root for the Seahawks and you, no offense, you Seahawks fans. Um, it's sin, Al. It's sin. <laughs> and probably all say that after the last Super Bowl. But where selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition exists, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. When we divide up as believers, we're functioning in the flesh. That's just one example. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Same subject in Galatians. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, you're now ending with the flesh. Paul says, observing the law is the flesh. Going to certain churches for the wrong reasons. It's the flesh. Getting drunk is the flesh. Chasing the ladies is flesh. What else can we call as flesh? Being too much in love with beauty or something like that could be flesh. This is a complicated undoing of our lives. Because the very nature of self is you serving. It says we are tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. Says that in James. Your desires, all of them, pride of life, desire of the eyes, desire of the flesh, are all the flesh. That's why we divide up Christian against Christian. That's why we treat each other badly. It's why we try to replace following the Spirit with following the law. Paul says that's going away from the spirit back to the law and back to the flesh. We don't realize the calamity I create. When he says in Romans 12, and I keep referring to this because it's a wonderful passage, 
about you're transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you realize this new law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has allowed the just requirement of the law to be met in you without having to go to the law? So whatever this is, your desire for holiness ought to be hungry for it. Whatever this set your mind on the spirit is, you might want to untie that knot. We've got, it's pretty simple for me to just lay out for you what the Bible says about the flesh. You know that sometimes we spend all of our time thinking out our you know, the superiority of our own theology over the others. And it's sometimes service to the flesh. Sometimes you could be thinking about the law of God as a service to the it's a service to the flesh. And you're thinking about the law of God. It's not easy necessarily to undo this knot. But I have to set my mind. But verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. Remember when it said back in 6, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must consider yourself. This says an indicative. This is not an imperative. Okay, verse 9. This tells you where you are, not what you must do. Imperative back in 6, it says you must consider yourselves dead to sin. That's what you must do. Imperative. No excuses. Go do it. This is an indicative. Indicates where you are. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, that's a question. Don't want to... Oh, then he he heaps, like that passage Graham read this morning. Let me tell you again. If anyone preaches a different gospel, they're damned. Really damned. You don't like the passages like that. That's what let them be cursed means. Anathema sit. They are damned. Here it says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You ever struggle with your assurance of salvation? I've gotten the questions a lot from people. You know, uh, do you believe you can lose your salvation? They don't really want to know the theology. They want to know if what they're feeling is a possibility. But so you tell them, no, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Oh, good. You know, because that's the only hope is the pastor's theology, you can't lose your salvation, given the doubts they're experiencing. But I do believe, I don't believe you can lose your salvation, (laughs) but I do believe you can lose your assurance. And I do believe that you can live in such a way, remember what he said to the Corinthians in Corinthians 3, I could not address you as spiritual men, but men of the flesh, babes in Christ. So I believe you could be in a state where your mind is set on the flesh, where your soul was saved, yes, but there is no reason you should be confident until you learn to set your mind on the spirit. And no reason why you're going to think victory isn't going to be natural in your life, in your life or your children's life. Oh, you might get stoic enough in your obedience thing that you're going to go do the rules and you might have kind of a, you know, one of those A-type personalities that can do rules really well. And pretty soon you're a bitter old guy that nobody likes to be around. But you kept the rules. Dear heavens. My father kept the rules before he was saved. He was was more righteous than anybody he knew. 
until he met the Christians at the Naval Academy. It ticked him off that they were better than he was. But people could do that. But your kids might not be able to. Don't hand them this kind of religion that says, you know, you're always going to have those passions. Just, you know, just here have these rules right out there at the edge to stop you from running past those points because God won't be happy. Ever think of telling them, don't think that way. Your mind is set on the flesh. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. This is indicative of what is the case. You need to accept this as true of a real believer. And if you have operated on a different thought pattern, you have just crippled yourself as a believer. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. But it means you've got to go back and look at this and say, my spirit is alive. I, I, sure, I'm cursed with this sack of desire, still hauling that around. It's still hungry. It still likes beauty. It still likes the ladies. It still likes to have my theology believed over other people's. I would like this to be a movement. I'm not going to get it. I just don't have a cult leader in me. But I would like to be a cult leader. Somebody told me the other day they actually agreed with me. Surprised the heck out of me. You can come, if you ever want to sort of, you know, give me a card. I want to encourage Evan. Just say, I agree with you about something. Hand it to me. I'll feel better for a while. Have those things, hauling that body of sin around, and it's still dead because of sin, my physical body. And I can see death from here. But my spirit is alive. Again, take that back to Romans 7 and see if you can read that. Oh, no, no, Paul, your spirit is alive. You can have victory over sin. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit which dwells in you. It's that promise back from earlier in Romans where it says we were, if we were early in 6 where, where it talks about if we, were, if we died with Christ we were also raised with Christ. That which the, the spirit of him, what's the phrase here? If the spirit of Christ does not dwell in you, you do not have Christ. Okay, check that. And if the spirit of Christ does dwell in you, he can raise your mortal body too. There's this promise of glory. This promise that this will cease. Not that this will get better. This will cease. So then, brother, we are debtors. Not to the flesh. That's almost opposite what every Christian today thinks. Well, you know, kind of we got to, you know, our bodies, you know, our old man. We sort of always got, we got to dis debt. We got to pay to our fallenness. Now, you are not debtors to the flesh. We are debtors to live, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You have a debt to that. 
a life standing out in front of us, if our minds can be set on the spirit, and if our minds stop being set on the flesh and all the mutations that fleshly thought has. All fleshly thought is the belief, if you want to sum it up, is the belief that your urges, your wants, matter. Most. To your action. To your plans. That's not what you're allowed to have. That's the war of the flesh against God, is who is Lord in life. Who is Lord in the universe? Who is Lord in you? That's why the law and your passions are constantly at war and why you constantly sin is because your motive force, your inertial reason to go do something is going to be your passions. And a lot of times, let's say most of the time, they're good passions. Good passions. Just eating a meal, not gluttony. Making out with the wife, not chasing women. Whatever the the good version of things, and most of your life going to work, making an honest day's wage, getting ahead, you know, regular ambition, you know, not, you know, wicked ambition. But you're living. None of those things, I'm not advocating that you get rid of those things. I'm advocating that you get rid of a mind that is set as if that is the inertial force, because that kind of mind, as soon as the hotter chick walks around the corner, as soon as the gluttonous moment arrives, as soon as the power of ambition or the, the loss of standing looks you in the face if you don't lie, you're hoping the law will be loud enough saying, don't lie, but you really want to lie, because your name is at People will know that you're bad. Pride of life. If it's your inertial force. Oh, I think God, I'm a big fan. You say, aren't you, aren't you kind of a hedonist? From what I've, I've been to your house. And, you know, food. I don't have a deep fryer. Tammy gave me a deep fryer one time, but it was too hard to keep clean. And once when I was asleep one time, Leslie threw it away. Well, I was asleep. That's a, okay, that's, a, okay, that's a story I made up. But you know that Evan, well, he's fat, and he likes cigars. You say, what are you talking about, Evan? You're just a hypocrite. Set on the flesh, you are the flesh incarnate. We have to deal with what's all this, what's this body of death, what's this mortality, what's this, what are passions. We're talking not about flesh qua flesh, that anything that somehow, that if it's tactile and sensual, like a Gnostic would do, the spirit and material is good. The immaterial is good, and the spirit is good. The material is, and flesh are bad. That's how they answered the problem. The Christian says, no, which is my inertial force, and which is the child of permission from the other? The mindset of the flesh is driven by their passions, and they use the law to try to be the, the pious or the good or the righteous child of this passionate-driven life. To the point where some churches are trying to teach you to be passionate about Jesus. 
Because they're trying to get you to be good somehow. They're trying to, but it's passion as the inertial force and law as the controller. In the spirit, in the spirit, it is the things of God. Mind set on the spirit. The inertial force are other things and the passions are the child of the true leadership in your life. God gives you your wife. God gives you your onion rings. God gives you and you receive them with thanksgiving because they come from the hand of God. But only if you went over and had the life of the Spirit, the walking in the Spirit, the set on the Spirit mindset. The rest of this chapter is Paul trying to encourage the saints to understand, I want to warn you, Romans 8, well, what if I said John 3, and you would say, 16. thank you, okay, Romans 8, 28, that's the problem, Romans 8, 28 is a great verse, but Romans 8 has that quality of being a go-to passage for a lot of different discussions. Wonderful passage. But Paul's really not really going after it for the things that are we quote the passages about. It's quotable, but it's not there for that. Paul's not writing, I'm going to write a bunch of Facebook posts and put them together like Lincoln, but they could all be set to kind of like a flowery, soft focus image of a pasture and maybe a noble elephant. I don't know, what would you put with it? You know, all sorts of things. We're not a debtor to the flesh. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You want to have this confidence in your Christian life of where you stand? Better set your mind on the Spirit. You better learn that this question, this nuance, do I move my life by passion? Which God made, okay, God made the desire of the flesh, God made the desires of the eyes, and God made the pride of life. You are naturally there, but First John tells you, do not love the world or the things in the world. It's our love for it. It's our using it as inertia. People marry the wrong person. People marry non-believers. Do you ever wonder why a friend of yours married a non-believer? They knew, they knew it was wrong. Well, yeah, the law doesn't help you at all, does it? You love her. No, really. It's real this time. How many stupid mistakes have we done? How many things we have done that we never realized were mistakes because we didn't realize that the whole system of you following what you want for the wants you have is wrong. You only notice that the wrong parts are wrong because laws pop up. Is your mind set on the Spirit? If you're led by the Spirit, you are sons of God. I would think both the desire for righteousness, remember the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, is fulfilling the just requirements of the law in us. If we don't have the Spirit of Christ, we do not have Christ. Anyone who 
is led by the Spirit, is a son of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. What he's describing here is so distinct from Romans 7. That was slavery. That was death. Don't have that kind of Christian life. Don't go back and say, Romans 7 describes me perfectly. My heavens. Find the Spirit of God because you have not been given that to fall back into fear. You're not having a law and flesh relationship. If I just find the best church that has the best rules and the best example and the best programs and the best this, that, and the other that will keep me from sin because Lord knows I want to. If you haven't noticed before, I don't sing that last part of the last verse of Come Thou Found. Because I believe the dang Bible. I'm not prone to wander. Oh, I do wander, but I'm not prone to wander. I'm not prone to leave the God I love if my heart is set on the things of the Spirit. That's where I can go. There is no obligation, there's no righteousness admitting that you're all broken. Everybody likes to be so authentic about it. Oh yeah, I struggle. Somebody was telling me, I think I saw it on Facebook. So Facebook does some good things. Somebody was commenting the other day as if all of the new terms of describing our, our brokenness, our little ball lamb who's lost their way, um, is almost a replacement piety for righteousness. Everybody's talking about their brokenness, nobody's talking about holiness. God has given us, in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the path through his incarnation and his atonement and his resurrection, the path to fulfilling the just requirements of the law. The things God wants of man are doable by the believer because he sets his mind on those spirits and he does not have a life law. This is about life philosophy. The way you think. Not the positions you take. If you think learning orthodox theology is going to save your rear end, it ain't. It's the way you think. I know people who are as orthodox and agree with me totally, who have a big struggle in their lives because their mind's still set on the flesh. They still believe that the motive force in life ought to be their wants controlled by the law. And because it's Christian law, in a Christian world, they don't realize the flesh can be having a breaking into denominations, it can have them putting themselves under the law, and sending up a storm. And they wonder why they've struggled, or they wonder why their kids struggle. That's slavery. When we cry, Abba, Father, by the way, I know it's popular, to say that Abba is kind of like Papa. It isn't. It is the word for Father in Aramaic. It is twice repeated. They put it Father's one time, Abba the other. It is not an endearment. You may use it as an endearment. Knock yourself out. Our kids called me Father, and it was an affectionate term. But anybody who's, again, Facebook postings has destroyed America because people want to have these this relationship. They want a passion with Jesus Christ. The very thing they do to that passage is against what this passage is about. Quit trying to make your life in Christ the answer to a passionate desire. It, 
When we cry this, and it seems this may have been part of their liturgical expression or things they would do in the body. When you cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Abba, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this is the wonderful thing about the Christian life. The world's been going on about 6,000 years. It's busted. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It's going to stay busted. And even when somebody talented is in charge and fixes it for a little bit, it's still busted and it still kills you. You will always suffer and die. And those you love may suffer and die before you suffer and die. And you get to watch them suffer and die. It is the nature of creation. And it is at war with the passionate existence. Everything in the flesh cries out, why do you think? Remember the question of theodicy? We covered it, new word in the vocabulary. Theos, God, dike, justice. Why does God let bad things happen to people? Uh, Stephen Fry on the f Facebook again talking about, you know, I don't believe in God because of bone cancer and a small child. How do we answer that? Well, we have a hard time answering it because we are about the flesh and our greatest utopia is everything being fixed. Everything being no suffering at all. And what does Christianity offer us? Well, it works out great, especially if you can add suffering to it. Especially. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's how you handle suffering. You don't have to explain anything. Suffering is because man is evil. Suffering exists because the matrix written by all men's free choices following their passions have created bone cancer in small children. You're to blame. It's none of this moment where you say, I found, a, I found a suffering where nobody's really guilty of anything so I could shake my fist at heaven. No. There's bad in the world because people are bad. And they have been bad for 6,000 years in every nuanced thought in their mind. Oh, I think they're capable of doing a good thing. Not everything they do is wicked. Just most of what they do. And what they do that isn't wicked overtly is this philosophy of the flesh that drives their life by their passions. Of course it creates bone cancer in little children. And you wouldn't want it any other way. Because if we didn't allow everyone to have their way when they wanted their way, you wouldn't get to have your way when you wanted your way. And just think of how many times every day you want your way. And somebody else would have to be denied. Everybody else would have to be controlled. I want my way. But for the Christian, you look at it and go, yeah, that's the result of sin, that's the result of passion, that's the result of man trying to have it his way instead of God's way. And I, I'm not, it can't be fixed. <coughs> so it has to be endured. Remember that passage in Romans 5 where it says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. It's a Christian virtue. 
Because we're not passion-driven, where I'm not having another birthday party today is the worst possible thing that can happen to you. Or I have a headache, or my, my, my foot itches, or this church is too cold. I know that I've heard the complaints. When we serve ourselves, when we serve our flesh, when we serve our wants, we've got all sorts of complaints at the ready. But I've got glory prepared for me, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Everything out there that's falling apart, entropy, futility, it sits there in some sort of consciousness that God is going to redeem. It groans for redemption from decay. Because the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Remember, this is all this future sense of what you have in Christ promised to you in hope. The creation hopes with you, you hope with it, and you, both of you groan together because you recognize the suffering. But it is not your guiding inertial force. Resolving the suffering is not the way you fix the world. So it groans, we groan. And then it says something odd, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. We're, but for people who are devoted to their flesh, they're always devoted to making their seat more comfortable. They're always hoping they can come up with some sort of strong conservative political action committee that will make the nation a utopia. That will, that will arrange everything right. A theocracy. God help us. You want to fix this. Says in Ecclesiastes, I overquote it, who can make straight what God has made crooked? This is bent. Deal with it. A life set on the Spirit understands it doesn't need to focus on your desires denied because your desires aren't your reason for doing things. Desires given to you are rewards of the living God. Things you can be thankful for. We're not, we're not Gnostics, we're not Stoics, we're Christians. And we know what our responsibility is in a fallen world it is not to be at war with, it, with our passions and then try to fix the moral problems of that with law. Look at this, and likewise, hope, oh, excuse me, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now here's a problem. Even in this, the blessed hope, people have their eschatologies drawn out for them with such vividness that they can make a movie. And people want to go see the movie because they want to be able to see what they hope for. And God is saying, yeah, you don't understand hope. If you're trying to make yourself see it, or imagine it too perfectly, or write a great story about it so that you can 
set it on. It's not hope anymore. Because the hope is not in what you see, it's in who you hope in. Who he is today in you is your hope. What he has given you in Christ is your hope. The fact that you trust him is your hope. You know he will not leave this creation subjected to futility. He will save it. He will redeem it. He cares about this. Just like you do. Mindset on the spirit. You and the spirit think alike on this. You and the creation and the spirit think alike on this. Don't insist that you satisfy your passions about the end. Have you noticed that that's what it seems to be? That every story or viewpoint tries to satisfy either a premillennial or a postmillennial set of passions. You get to have what you want. Things happen. You get to be raptured or you get to rule the world. Something. It's like the 72 virgins you get promised if you blow yourself up. Different religion, not ours. Is it 70 virgins or 72? 72? Okay. Got to be clear. Got to have our hopes very visualized. We hope for what we do not see, but we wait, with, wait for it with patience. But passion, flesh, it's impatient. It's stamping its little slippered foot, saying, I want to know. Were you the one of the kids down there under the tree some nights before Christmas trying to look through the paper? I did. Any of you got really good at steaming open presents and replacing all the tape exactly where it was? Because you, you wanted to see what you were hoping for. You are swine. I was swine too. I think my mother figured it out. They started making paper that was like opaque. You could not see through it no matter what. But this is why I've said that you have the mind of the spirit. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Okay? we got this suffering. we got this world that is not cooperating with our passions. And so instead of trying to fix it and serving our passions and making everything work out and then keeping ourselves constrained by the law, which just means a life of sin and self-absorption, you accept that it's suffering, you endure the suffering, your character is developed, and you have hope. That was in chapter 5. And you know that reality understands this. You can step outside, and as soon as you accept futility, you can accept the weather in, on the Palouse. As soon as you realize, hey, this is all vain. This is all pointless. This is all decay. Yes, I can accept this. And you, and it groans, and you groan, but here, it says the same thing of the Spirit. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs, groans, too deep for words. Creation groans, you groan, it groans, because you're in the Spirit. You know this is flawed. The Spirit knows it's flawed. We don't understand the nature of the beast, but God intercedes to God for us regarding it. He who searches the hearts of men knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And this is where verse 8.28 shows up. But it's not about some, you know, some mom. Little Johnny tripped at the playground and broke his leg. 
Romans 8, 28, she wringing her hand with other mothers. We know that in everything God works for good with those that love him. So Johnny's broken leg is going to work out. Oh, heavens. Read the rest of the chapter. Maybe start with Romans 1. Paul's not writing this as a quotable. Have you ever read somebody's writing who's throwing those in as they want to have you remember this almost overly poetic phrasing of Paul's not even trying to be poetic here. He says, We know, look, we know that in everything God works for good that those with those that love him, who are called according to his purpose. That's our knowledge of God. Those whose minds are set on the Spirit know that about God. We know there is suffering, but God is for us. We know this. This is a fact. It's not a quotable. It's not a proof text, or it's not a pietism. Don't turn the greatness of understanding the Spirit of God or how God looks at the world into that kind of lifestyle. Almost as you erect these quotes as breaks, as many laws against where your passions would take you. Because the fear of the mother, little Johnny broke his leg, and, and so she, she's struggling against the fear. She knows that probably this shouldn't, I shouldn't feel this way. And so she clings to this verse as it were a law. Oh, I don't think she should have, should be reprimanded for weeping over her son's broken, what did, what did he break? Arm? Leg? Okay. Both of them. Because I'm a guy. In an explosion. God is promising us suffering. That's the nature of the world. Our groaning in our hope in God is our answer. And it's in our hope in glory that we have the remedy. Because the person who claims Romans 8.28 is about, you know, maybe next year he's going to be the captain of the football team, because in all things God works together for good, and both broken legs means, oh, but you can promise little Johnny God's going to work this together for good, and you might be captain of the football team next year. Because we're trying to make a successful, passionate, fleshly existence work out, always obedient to the law, and we don't know we're structuring a life of failure. Those whom he foreknew. I want, this is another passage that's quotable by you know, people in the determinism, free will debate. They go to Romans 8 on this passage and then they fight over the meaning of the order of the words. Don't think of it in those terms. Either way. I believe in freedom of the will. Some of you believe in determinism. Knock yourselves out. That's not what the passage is about. The passage is about you coming to grips with what a mindset of the Spirit concludes. You conclude that passion will never be answered well enough to make you happy. And law will never work righteousness enough to stop you from sin when you're driven by passion. And so you better think like the living God. Look in the think like the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Take in the reality God has made. Absorb it. Go to God and have his grace give his spirit to you. You can be sure that those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In the context of the passage, whatever you think of predestination, the mind should be going, he's promised to conform me to the image of his son. That's where your heart should go, whether you believe in freedom or will, whether you believe in determinism. In this passage is, what's my hope? Because my hope in this, being better looking, lighter, live longer, get more money, that's the flesh. Trying to order it by tight theology or law, that's the flesh. But I should be confident that Jesus Christ wants me made into his image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, so I could be family of God. Because those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, said back in verse 14. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's the word you should pay attention to. Because conformed to the image of his Son, and being glorified is the hope that all this suffering pales in comparison. What does he say? I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. So the passage is about pointing you to God's faithfulness, and you have to consider whether you believe God or not. Not whether it's pictured in your mind well enough, not whether you've created a fiction for yourself, but whether you believed God. Instead of believing yourself and your own urges, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? He's the promise to your hope. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who, in, in, who indeed intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Not a real promising future there for us. As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Hey, welcome aboard to Christianity. Hard for us to think this way in an affluent nation. All of us middle class, bills are paid. I can go to the dentist if I wanted to. Nakedness, peril, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If your mind is set on him and not set on the flesh, you are not measuring success for Christ in you by a passionate life lived inside the law. If you manage to do it, you probably destroy your children. Don't pursue the flesh. Set your mind on the Spirit. What do I mean by that? Because it doesn't say here in the passage what setting your mind on the Spirit is. It says where the power is from because it's the atonement, the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. And we know from other places the promise of the Spirit is the work of God in you. So what is God going to respond to in you? Well, you know from this passage is setting your mind on it. Going after it. We know from other passages, it says, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So dread God. You're supposed to seek God. You're supposed to believe God. 
You're supposed to call on God. You're supposed to thank God. There's five things there. I have for this one, two, three, four, five. Now, that's not a complete list, but once you, if you're involved in that, your idea is no longer about whether you're having a birthday party today or whether your, you know, sciatica is bothering you. Suffering is bound to happen, folks. It's going to kill you in the end. You better figure out a way to live in righteousness that isn't this failed community of law and passion. I recommend that you stop thinking about whether or not you can improve how you feel. And you learn who God is. And you look at Him. And you believe Him. Let's thank God. Lord, we're grateful. We've got so much to learn of you. But we know We trust the God you preached in your apostle. Stands there waiting for us to trust you. Whether we believe here in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we thank you in your son's name. Amen.